You have to excuse me this morning. About a year ago, I went to the dentist and found out the uh, consequences of having lots of cavities when you were younger. And then going about 30 years and those cavities, the fillings start to crack. So I went back and uh, got a bunch of my teeth fixed. And there's one that the dentist said, well, there's one tooth that's the worst. And I can't believe it's not hurting you yet, but it either needs to be extracted or you need a root canal. But if it's not hurting you, you know, you, could, you got time to decide. Come back when it starts to hurt. It's hurting. So this morning I told uh, Natalie that if I had a wrench, or a wrench, would it be a wrench? Pliers, pliers, I would pull out the tooth myself. So it hurts when I breathe in. So I'm going to try to preach just breathing out. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But uh, anyways, on lots of uh, Advil and Tylenol. So if I forget what I'm talking about, that's my excuse this morning. Uh, this week I had a friend... Uh, from high school, actually, invite me to be a friend on Facebook. I haven't talked to this guy for 30-something years, I guess. And uh, I was just looking at his Facebook site, and apparently he loves bumper stickers because uh, he's always got these postings of all these different bumper stickers. And, and a good number of them are crude. Uh, some are funny. Unfortunately, some of the funny ones are crude. So I was thinking... I, which ones could I even share? And there isn't really any that I can share, but he likes bumper stickers. But as I was thinking of bumper stickers, I was thinking, we don't really see many bumper stickers anymore. I don't know. Maybe people just don't like putting them on their cars. They put those little stick fingers of how many kids and dogs and cats they have. But the old fashioned bumper stickers, uh, you don't see them so often. But I remember 20, 30 years ago that they were kind of popular, even amongst Christians. And there would be real Christian bumper stickers. And, and uh, I was trying to think of some of the ones that I'd uh, maybe even had on my older vehicles. Uh, you know, the one, if, you know, beware of, ra- if, if there's a rapture, the driver will disappear, whatever it was. There was the one uh, for the Billy Graham crusade. I found it. You can find it too, uh, which was to uh, obviously have people ask questions. Uh, I'm not, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. But there was one that I remember the most, and it was honk if you love Jesus. And I can remember driving with my dad. And if we saw honk if you love Jesus, my dad, who was not that kind of a person, would honk his horn. And I thought, how many Christians must be honking the horn? How many accidents have been caused because all these Christians are honking the horn because they love Jesus? But you see this bumper sticker and how can you not honk? honk if you love Jesus. And as I thought about that bumper sticker, I asked myself, well, well, do I love Jesus? And so I ask you, do you love Jesus? Yes. Yes. Okay. You're probably going to have people staring at you if you don't say, yes, I love Jesus. But do you really love Jesus? Is your love for Jesus evident in the way that you live your life, in your actions and in your words? Do the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, uh, are they evidence of our love for Jesus? Would others testify of our love for Jesus? Just this past week, I was was sharing with someone that uh, it was just over two years now uh, since my father passed away. And I was sharing with them about the visitation uh, and dad's funeral. And all the wonderful testimonies that people gave about my father. 
Uh, and if you were there, if you had listened to these people talking, if you'd been at the funeral, you would know that my dad loved Aurelia. He loved IAPA, his workplace, for many years. He loved my mom. He loved his children. He loved reading multiple newspapers in a day. But more than anything, the testimony that was heard over and over and over again was my dad loved Jesus. I think of uh, Brian, your mom's funeral. That's uh, happened after my dad's funeral. And uh, there was some wonderful testimonies about your mom. Uh, She loved Bowmanville. She loved her church. She loved, I think, folding bulletins. She loved her children and her grandchildren. She loved board games. But the loudest testimony was your grandma, or sorry, your mom, loved Jesus. I find that so challenging. And that's what I was sharing with this individual. What is it that I want people to say when it's my funeral, when it's my visitation? What are they most likely to say? They're going to say, Brent loved the Toronto Maple Leafs. As sad as that might be. <laughs> he loves the Peterborough Peets. And of two teams I could choose to love. Uh, I love the Peterborough Peets. Brent loved his wife, Allison. Brent loved his kids. Brent loved his church. Brent loved to serve in the church. Brent loved to preach. But more than anything, my hope is someone will say, wow, did Brent ever love Jesus? And yet one of my most painful experiences, going back to another high school acquaintance, I think I've shared it here before, but I'll share it again, was bumping into a girl who I'd gone to high school with. I didn't really have much to do with her at high school. She was kind of a quiet, good student, and I was kind of a loud, troublemaking student. And I bumped into her about 10 years after high school at a neighborhood Bible study. And I said, Wilona, how are you? And she looked at me and said, Brent Mackey, you're the last person I would have ever guessed I would run into at a Bible study. I never would have dreamed that you were or that you would ever become a Christian. And those words I've never forgotten, and they hit me like a ton of bricks. As I listened to Arnie read our passage for this morning, and as I read over it this morning myself and and during this week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And and turn to uh, John 14 if you don't have it open. And as you're turning, listen to some of these statements in these five or six verses or eight or nine verses uh, that make up our text for this morning. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Those verses hit me hard. You know, a few weeks ago, we were looking at the beginning of John chapter 14, and I shared with you, and and some of you shared back, some of the commands that are really tough to obey. 
Well, as I've studied these verses, I can't help but think of the commands that I know I don't consistently obey. And unfortunately, I could make such a long list of them, it would probably take up our whole time this morning. But some of the ones that stood out to me, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, where it says, if, if, you're, if you're at the altar with your offering, and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift, go back and reconcile, then come back to the altar. And how often I fail to consistently do that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind and compassionate. Forgiving others as as Jesus has forgiven you. Those are commands that I don't consistently obey. Galatians 6 verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. I know there's times in my life I'm just worried about my own burden. And Matthew 28, verse 20. Go into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples. That's verse 19. And then you get to verse 20. And it says, teaching them to obey. That's a double whammy. And yet Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Those who don't love me, they don't obey my teaching. And then I picked up a book. It's a book I've had probably for 30 years. Charles Swindle's book, Improving Your Serve. I've started to read it a number of times by the the, uh, evidence of underlining the first three or four chapters. But as I flipped through it, I came to uh, a story that Swindle tells. I'm not going to take the time to to tell the story, but he he, he paints a, a pretend picture of him being an executive and leaving his staff in charge, and he's going to, to do some work offshore. And he starts sending letters and communications and leaves instructions. Uh, and then after a period of time, he comes back and he finds all of his staff just sitting around, not doing a whole lot of anything. And the boardroom had been changed into a TV room, and the, and the uh, receptionist is, is doing her nails at the table. And, and uh, he goes to the person he left in charge, and he says, like, what's going on? He said, didn't you get my letters? Didn't you see my instructions? Uh, and the individual who had been put in charge uh, while this pretend executive had, had uh, gone offshore says, oh yeah, we did receive your letters. In fact, we used to get together every Friday night and we'd study your letters. I mean, some of you actually even memorized uh, your letters. Those, those were some really good instructions. And so the story continues and, and Swindle finally says, well, what are you doing? What did you do with them? And the person who was left behind says, well, what do you mean do anything with them? And and Swindle's point in telling this story, and he does it much better than I just did. I probably just executed it. Uh, But his point is the, the problem and the consequences of a lukewarm and apathetic church that's been called to obey that's been called to make disciples, has been called to be a witness, has, has been called to make disciples who obey the commands of Jesus as well. And yet, so many individuals and so many parts of the church have become ineffective and, and unproductive and unattractive. And yet Jesus says, if you love me, commands, and, and those who don't keep my commands, those are the ones who don't 
love me. Over the last three weeks, uh, I guess last week we had a break, but over the last four weeks we've been looking at, as Arnie said, the Upper Room Discourse. Lessons that we can learn from Jesus' teaching to his beloved disciples the evening before he's, or the evening that he's arrested and just before he's put to death. And, and as we started in chapter 13, we, saw, we, we learned two real beautiful truths. And if you were here uh, two weeks ago, uh, it was a, not the greatest weather day, so I know a lot of you weren't here, but I used that illustration of the, the boy that had only one hand and the little girl that clasped hands with him, and they were able to do, this is the church, this is the steeple. And I said, what a beautiful picture of the church that is. And, and we, we saw in chapter 13 these two lessons from the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand. And that is that true followers of Jesus are marked, first of all, uh, by humble acts of service, that, that followers of Jesus are to express their love for others and for God through humble acts of service. And then secondly, that, that followers of Jesus love each other. And when you put those two things together, you have something that's so attractive, that's so magnetic, that the world that may not believe, the world who, who may have no idea about Jesus stands up and takes notice. But I also mention that 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to, to glean some really nice lessons from the Upper Room Discourse. But for the disciples, this was, this was real life. They were in a really tough situation. We've talked about the fact that they were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest before they even got into the Upper Room. And then they sat around the table and then Jesus stood up and washed their feet, and told them that they should do likewise. And then as the, as the scene progresses in the upper room, Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And he identifies to John that it's Judas who is going to betray him. And then after Judas leaves the room, Jesus tells them that now is the time for the Son to be glorified. And for those disciples who had been listening to Jesus earlier, they realized that when Jesus talked about being glorified, that when he talked about the time now has come, he was talking about his death. And these disciples, they understood that he was the Messiah, but that was not the concept of Messiah uh, that they were thinking about. So they're trying to reconcile, what does it mean when Jesus says he has to die? Why does he have to leave? We've put all of our hope in him, and now he's going to leave, and then he tells us we can't follow him where he's going? How does that compute with, with this Messiah that we were expecting? And then chapter 13 ends with, with Jesus telling Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. It kind of hits Peter over the head with a spiritual two-by-four. And that's how chapter 13 ends. As I said two weeks ago, there are no chapter breaks when you're in the upper room with Jesus. Chapter 14 just flows. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Stop being troubled. Trust in me. And so we saw in week three that third lesson is that followers of Jesus trust him. They trust his person. They trust his promises. And they trust his presence. And so we left the upper room two weeks ago with Jesus giving some great assurance to his disciples that they can stop being troubled. 
they can put their trust and their dependence in him. But then we come to our verses for this morning. And it's as if Jesus lays another heavy on them. As if he takes another spiritual two by four and hits them across the head. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You see, another mark of a follower of Jesus is their love for Jesus, which is evidenced in their obedience. A true measure of our love for Jesus is commands. What are we supposed to make of these commands, these words of Jesus, given the context? Hours before he's going to be put to death, his disciples totally fearful and paranoid. Jesus looks at them and says, if you love me, keep my commands. And this morning what I want to do is just to share with you two ways that I believe we need to understand the words of Jesus so that we can understand what it means as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what it means for us to truly love Jesus and what it means to keep his commands. And the first way that we need to understand these words of Jesus is that these are Jesus's parting words of instruction. As I said, my dad died two years ago, and about three months before he died, he'd had a heart attack and a stroke. He was in hospital. He, he was recovering. We, we expected that he was going to be moving into a nursing home with my mom. Uh, my dad didn't realize he was going to die two or three months later, but he did recognize that him and my mom were entering that final chapter of life. And I can remember sitting with him in the recovery uh, wing uh, of the Ajax Hospital. And, and Dad started sharing with me some of the things that he had hoped that myself and my siblings would be able to do for him, uh, and especially for my mom, to do with the house, to do with finances, uh, to do with where they were going to be living. Uh, and it made sense that he, realizing he was nearing the end of his life, it was time to give that kind of instruction. And so it makes sense to me that Jesus, realizing that he was on the eve of his death, would have some fairly frank, rubber-hits-the-road instructions and words and, and, and thoughts to share with his disciples, especially given the fact that Jesus understood the fruit of uh, obedience and he understood the consequences of disobedience. And so Jesus is going to give his disciples and his followers like us that follow after his disciples some parting words of instruction. And there's a lot of preachers and a lot of scholars co- co- uh, preaching on this text and, and writing about this text land on that um, purpose for these verses. That, that Jesus wants his disciples, wants his followers to know That if we love him, we need to be keeping his commandments. They would say that this text belongs with a fairly long list of other texts in Scripture. 
where followers of Jesus, where followers of God are cautioned or even confronted when their lifestyle isn't lining up, isn't consistent with their faith relationship with God. And so we're to understand what Jesus is saying here is if you love me, if you truly love me, then you will keep my commands. What does it mean to love Jesus? It's just yesterday we were talking around our table at home and we were talking about someone from Auburn. I'm not going to say who it was, although it was very nice things we were saying about that person. And I had made a comment, my daughter made a comment, and Allison, in answering what we were talking about this person, said, he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. And I said, of course, thinking about the message, well, what do you mean he loves Jesus? Because our concept of love is influenced by our experience of loving others, of being loved by others, of being loved by a gracious God. And so I know that God loves me despite who I am. God loves me even though I mess up, even though I, 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 I can sin. God loves me despite the ugliness of my past. And I know that Allison loves me. Despite the fact that if she tries really hard, she can find one or two faults about me. I know that she loves me, and I have more than one or two faults. She loves me despite my weaknesses. And I love Allison even though I could probably list a couple of minor weaknesses, faults. I love you, despite, and I could probably list a few things. So my understanding, my concept of loving others and being loved is influenced by my experience. But we don't love Jesus that way. We don't love Jesus despite. We don't love Jesus even though. Loving Jesus isn't a gracious thing when it comes from me. Because there are no defects. There are no weaknesses. There is no ugliness of sin. I love Jesus because he's totally worthy of my love. It's not a in spite of or even though kind of love. It's, it's, it's a love that's totally logical. I like how John Piper writes, if I can find it here. He says, love for Jesus is a response to beauty and greatness and glory. It is desiring, admiring, treasuring, enjoying him because he's those very things. Loving Jesus is delighting in an excellent Savior. So to love Jesus means to treasure him above all other things, to desire him, to long for him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied 
in all that he is. And when Allison spoke of that gentleman from our church and said, you know what? Stan Metcalf loves Jesus. It's because if you've ever met Stan or if you've ever talked to Stan or you've ever heard him share, you know he loves, he treasures, he delights. His satisfaction, his full enjoyment is found in Jesus. And that's what it means to love Jesus. And what's the result? What happens when we love, when we treasure, when we delight, when he's our desire? Four times in our text, Jesus says, if I'm your delight, if you treasure me, if you truly love me, you'll obey my commands. You'll obey my teaching." And yet there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect in my life because I got a problem. Because that's not always the case. And I think of that other passage in Scripture that, that defines my problem. It says that where your treasure is, there so is your heart. And where your heart is, you're going to find that which you delight in. That which you love. And where you put your heart, that's where you put your submission. That's what you're going to obey. And so the question to you and the question to me is, what is my treasure? Where's my heart? Because it's easy for us all to say, yes, I would honk if I saw that bumper sticker. Honk if you love Jesus. It's easy to affirm verbally that Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. Meaning I submit to His rule. But when it comes to your everyday life, when it comes to my everyday life, what is our treasure? Who calls the shots? To who or what are we submitting our heart to? And so maybe we need to look at our love for Jesus. We say that we love Jesus, but do we speak to him? You know, if I told Allison that I loved her, but I never talked to her. If I told Allison that I truly love you, but the only communication we had was when I wanted something or when I was complaining. She'd have every right to question my love. And yet how many of us can go day, weeks, without coming before our Savior and Lord in prayer. But we say that we love him. We say that we love him, but do we listen to him? Read a recent statistic, 67% of professing followers of Jesus only pick up their Bible when the pastor tells them to on Sunday. But we say that we love him. We say that we love him, but do we regularly worship together with others who love him? We say that we love him, but do we serve? And realize the flip side is true. I could preach thousands of sermons. I could lift my hands while I sing. I could say all the right things. I can serve like an animal in the church. But if the rule of my lifestyle is not keeping the commands of Jesus, I'm really showing him nothing more 
than possibly lukewarm affection. And so we have the parting instructions of Jesus. But I don't want to leave us just understanding this text as that. As important as I think understanding it that way is, I think there's a second way that we can look at this text. Equally as important and perhaps even more true given the con not more true, but more true in the context of where we read it. And that is that these words here are Jesus' parting words of encouragement. And you might go, okay, how are these words of encouragement? Because I just feel like I've been beaten with the spiritual two by four as well. Jesus is saying these words to his disciples hours before his betrayal, before the most horrific event in history, when he's going to give his life on the cross. He knows where his disciples' heads are at. And so he shares with them some very encouraging words, which ultimately are this. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And my Father and my Spirit and I will never leave you. We will never forsake you, no matter what happens, no matter where you find yourself. See, behind those verses that I shared at the beginning that that really struck me hard, if you love me, keep my commands. Those who don't keep my commands, they don't love me. Behind those verses, there is a beautiful love relationship described. Verse 16. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And then Jesus says, and I'll ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. Verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you'll see me because I live. You also will live. Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and he will come to them and make our home with them. You see, behind those verses is this wonderful love relationship described. You see, there's something that's special and unique and intimate that is reserved for those who treasure and delight who put their love in Jesus. Now, obviously, God's love comes first. Romans 5, 1 John 4 says that, that God demonstrated his love in the, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while, the, while we were hostile. He sent Jesus to die for us. So God loves us. His love make, makes it possible for us to love him. But here in these verses, Jesus tells us something quite unique. He says, when you put your love in Jesus... The Father responds with a unique, special, uh, caring, loving, lasting love for those who put their love in Jesus. And so these words, far from being a spiritual two by four, 
is actually an invitation for you and I to embrace this intimate relationship that we were meant to enjoy. A relationship that's hindered when we disobey. And we don't have much time to talk about it, but, but when you read these verses, you can, you can be confused. It, it sounds like God can love some people and not love others, but that's not true. God loves the whole world. But he does have a special love for those who put their faith and their love in Jesus. I love my children. That love is unique. I may love your children, but my love for my children is special. I don't think you would expect me to love your children the way that I love my children. I love my children fully. I don't think I could love them anymore as a human father. I want the best for them. I want to share my blessings with them. But when they disobey, the flow of blessings sometimes gets hindered and obstructed. And that's the relationship that we have with God. He loves us. Our disobedience can hinder that flow of blessing. But he calls us to embrace this intimate relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. And one thing that's interesting about the Gospel of John that helps us to understand verse 15, uh, perhaps in a different light. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. But if you go through the Gospel of John and you were to list all the commands that you find there, there's really only a few that fall under the column moral behavior commands. They're, they're pretty important commands. Feed my sheep. Love others as I've loved you. I mean, those can consume your whole life. But most of the commands that we find in the Gospel of John coming from the mouth of Jesus are commands such as this. Follow me. Trust me. Receive me. Receive my spirit. Kind of makes sense. If Jesus is our delight, if he is our treasure, if we love him, then we are going to abide in him, that we are going to follow him, that we are going to trust him, that we are going to abide in him, that we are going to receive from him. It kind of helps us understand, as I said, in a different light, in an encouraging way, what Jesus is saying. And so then Jesus, through these verses, shares what the results, what, the, what he promises those who delight and treasure and love him will receive. And the sum of it is simply that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will never leave you. And they'll never forsake you. No matter where you are, no matter what happens. But in all these verses, and if we were to walk through each one, we would see how Jesus just lays um, one expression upon another expression of the blessings that come from being and embracing this relationship with the triune God. And it talks about the Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Counselor, who will be with us. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. If you love me, obey my commands, but you don't have to do it on your own. 
Because I'm sending another one. Not, not another one of a different kind. It literally means I'm sending another one just like me. And he's going to live in you. He doesn't want to just be there to help you when you need help. He wants to be there to consume you. To empower you. To console you. To confront you. The spirit of truth. That will open our minds and our hearts to the truth concerning Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You're not going to be fatherless. And as you get down through these verses, the one that I really love is verse 23. It says, my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Remember the start of chapter 14 where Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place in his father's house? The same word house is the same word home here. And so our glorious hope that that there's coming a day when we will spend eternity in the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Jesus is saying here, I'm not leaving you. I will be with you. My father and I, we are going to make our dwelling in you. Now. And so the choice is ours. Do we love Jesus? I think the question should be, why wouldn't we love Jesus? Why wouldn't we treasure him and delight in him? The one who has made it possible for us to enter into this wonderful, intimate love relationship with the triune God, where God pours out his blessings, pours out his person, pours out his guidance and his provisions into our life. If you love me, Keep my commands.